0: Hey, welcome, A.J.T. readers. This is Josh Levitsky. I am here to be the um, MC today, as always, for uh, A.J.T. highlights, along with Roz Mannin. And uh, today we also have Lisa McElroy from uh, Duke, who's going to be who is our um, A.J.T. fellowship trainee intern this month. And this is for the March version of a March edition of, of A.J.T. We have five papers to go over today. This is with a, a lot of diverse uh, themes. And so let me go ahead and list the titles of each of these uh, papers that we're going to be discussing, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. So Lisa is going to do the first two papers. The first one is on racial disparities and, and t- by Peter Reese. It's a commentary, racial disparities in preemptive weight listing and deceased donor kidney transplantation ethics and solutions and then lisa will do the next paper which is on alcoholic hepatitis by Cotter et al liver transplantation for alcoholic hepatitis in the united states excellent outcomes with profound temporal and geographic variation in frequency then i will do a paper from ivanix and the henry ford group on retransplantation outcomes for hepatitis c in the us before and after direct acting antiviral introduction and then uh Roz will will finish us off with two papers the first being distinct roles for major and minor antigen barriers in chimerism based tolerance under radiation free conditions by Mar et al and then the last one by Cooper is ensuring the The Need Has Met, a 50-year simulation study of the National Kidney Registry's Family Voucher Program. So I'd like to welcome you both, and um, Lisa, why don't you take it away on on your first first paper.
1: Thanks, Josh and Roz, and thank you uh, for having me and for your mentorship as part of the AJT Editorial Fellowship. As you said, Josh, this first paper is a viewpoint by Dr. Reese at the University of Pennsylvania The premise of the article um, is that only 11% of all deceased donor kidney transplants were preemptive in 2019. And um, the authors sort of discussed the significant racial disparity in the access to that type of transplant. White patients received about 65% of preemptive kidney transplants during that time, despite comprising only 38% of the waitlist, and in contrast, Black patients received only 17% of preemptive kidneys, but made up 31% of the waiting list. Unfortunately, this is not a new problem, and the authors cite research from 20 years ago uh, reporting the same disparity. And access to preemptive kidney transplant for black patients. The kidney allocation system, which was implemented in 2015, did not specifically address preemptive uh, transplant from the deceased donor organ pool. And, you know, subsequent to that, this racial disparity in access to preemptive transplantation has grown. As we know, preemptive kidney transplant carries significant benefits, and this includes avoidance of dialysis and access to um, high quality kidneys. Um, The authors posit that with preemptive kidney transplantation, patients with both residual kidney function and a greater ability to navigate the health system end up with greater access to this um, service. And these tend to be majority white patients uh, with a higher education level and private insurance. The authors created a conceptual framework that demonstrates the myriad of barriers to preemptive waitlisting in deceased donor kidney transplant. Um, and they include patient provider center level barriers and then specific barriers to preemptive waitlisting and preemptive transplantation. The barriers to preemptive um waitlisting centers largely on structural and systemic bias um, and these manifest as delayed referral which can be driven by clinician bias but also um, they discuss the use of race-based gfr calculations that overestimate real function in black patients the differences in social determinants of health by race such as insurance coverage and health literacy can certainly limit Patient level mitigation of these efforts, and the authors discuss that as well. One of the strengths of this article, in my opinion, is that the authors don't stop with a simple description of the problem of this disparity or even listing contributing factors, but take it one step further and suggest specific interventions to improve equity and preemptive weight listing and kidney transplant. And they organize these interventions based on the targets either center, system, or patient level. I thought their suggestions related to the EMR-based reminders and automated referrals of CKD patients directly to transplant centers were of particular interest. And they also recommend calculation of the GFR without the race coefficient, which as we all know is a topic of much discussion nationally right now. In terms of the allocation system, they recommended using a lower GFR threshold for eligibility for preemptive transplant and then also resetting the waiting time to dialysis start date for the patients who start dialysis before transplant. They conclude their paper by recommending that transplant policy members consider eliminating allocation of deceased donor kidneys to preemptive I'm sorry, to pre-dialysis patients if this issue of inequity cannot be addressed. I thought the article was very interesting and, and very well organized. I would bring two um, aspects of it um, to the reader's attention. The first is I think it takes some time to sort through the tables. They've included a, a large amount of information there, but it's really great information. In table one, one of the things I notice is the rightmost column comments on the ability of the proposed remedy to address these racial disparities and in almost all of the rows, the authors list the benefits um, as being indirect. I actually thought they sold themselves a little short here because they've done a really nice job addressing the multiple different levels where an intervention can be implemented. However, I will acknowledge that the challenge of demonstrating direct benefits when you're working on inequities in healthcare and particularly access to transplant, and I think that's really a limitation of the data that we have available right now to track patients as they progress through the evaluation and listing process. The second thing I would bring to the um, reader's attention is actually Table 2 where the authors compare the U.S. eligibility criteria for preemptive waitlisting and the, uh, the waiting time for allocation priority and the process for calculating the GFR Um, with other countries around the world, and when I looked at this, I noticed that the United States has by far the most flexible eligibility requirement for kidney function, but there is a fair amount of variation. Overall, I thought it was a very interesting uh, viewpoint. I agree with the authors completely avoiding dialysis is optimal for patients, but this, this opportunity really has not been shared equally with various groups who are disadvantaged um, and, and face barriers around navigation of the transplant evaluation process. And that includes, of course, racial minorities. That's a great and a great summary, Lisa, of an action-packed paper
2: that I'd urge the readership to turn to because the implementation of many of those suggestions in Table Two are going on um, Table One are going to really require many of us in different aspects. Some are policy, some could be potentially law, some are educational, some are structural. Um, and some just, you know, are gonna depend on things outside of our abilities, such as the referring physician, um, which I think we struggle with. I, I also found the, the comparison to other countries of interest, and so I, I didn't know whether to take from that table, but we're not so bad off, or, I mean, my sense is we can do, we should do better, we can do better, and I wasn't sure that comparing us to other countries is a great example, because they have their issues as well with patients, but I, I didn't know if you had any other takeaways from it in terms of policy change uh, relative to other countries.
1: It didn't take away any, you know, concrete opinion about why wow, we need to adopt this policy from another country. I think the thing that I found interesting about the table was it just demonstrates, you know, the variation. And and I think what what I noticed was it seems no one really has figured this out. Perfectly, you know. I do. I do wonder about the use of just a single creatinine measure to estimate GFR, which we do very commonly in this country. And I think, um, you know, is not the intention of that formula. We because you just can't tell trend with a single creatinine. But I don't think any. I didn't notice that any country had sort of the perfect policy on this. I think there's more work to be done here, which you know, was uh, that was sort of high-level takeaway from the paper from my perspective.
0: Great. All right, great. Well, thanks, so Lisa. Why don't you uh, just go right into the next paper on uh, alcoholic hepatitis? Completely different subject, but yeah. <laughs> nevertheless, uh, an interesting paper by by Cotter and our group.
1: Yeah, Dr. Cotter uh, at the University of Chicago, and actually Colleagues of his from around the country worked on this paper, which discusses practice patterns in liver transplantation for alcoholic hepatitis. Um, and alcoholic hepatitis, they distinguish as an inflammatory syndrome occurring in acute and chronic settings with histologic characteristics, um, including neutrophilic globular inflammation, hepatocyte degenerative changes, steatosis, pericellular fibrosis, with coexisting cirrhosis in up to 90% of cases, and it can be mild, moderate, or severe, Um, and is associated with a fairly significant mortality, but is part of the spectrum of alcohol-related liver disease, um, which the author's discuss has been largely limited to patients who are able to demonstrate some period of abstinence, and that certainly varies at centers around the country, but six months is a very commonly used time period for that. There's been a growing interest in early liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis, and about one quarter of all transplant centers have done that at least once at this point, but there's a significant amount of practice variation and patient selection criteria vary widely around the country. So the, the authors designed their study with a couple of objectives in mind. First, they wanted to assess the latest uh trends and practice patterns at center and regional levels in terms of transplantation for alcoholic hepatitis. They also wanted to look at patient graft survivals with in comparison to other indications for liver transplantation. And then they wanted to identify characteristics associated with post-transplant um, graft failure among those patients who are transplanted uh, for alcoholic hepatitis. And they defined a cohort of adult patients who underwent transplant from 2014 through the end of 2019. So in terms of their first objective, which was to look at practice variation and trends, their cohort included about 400 patients who had been transplanted for alcoholic hepatitis which represents about 1% of all liver transplants. And just for reference, this is um, in comparison with more than 11,000 transplants for alcohol-related liver disease, which represents nearly a third of all transplants at this point. The number of liver transplants for alcoholic hepatitis had increased from 28 in 2014 to 139 in 2019, which represents a five-fold during the study period and a greater increase than any other diagnostic group. There was a significant amount of variation in practice by center. The rate of increase for liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis varied eightfold between various UNOS regions. Um, The Northeast appears to do the most of these. They do about 5% of them as measure of total transplants versus regions 8, 10, and 11 were the the least frequent and they were under 1%. The waiting time for these patients also varied about 20-fold. Between UNOS regions. Um, I thought it was interesting. They they reported that 50 to 90% of the liver transplants performed for alcoholic hepatitis are accounted for by three transplant centers in each UNOS region. I thought that was really fascinating. So clearly there are a few centers that have sort of started doing this routinely. They also reported that regional variation has stabilized somewhat in the last two years of their study cohort. Um. So it seems that as we're doing more of these, the um, the variation is is lessening somewhat. In terms of the second objective of their paper, which was to look at patient graft survivals in comparison to other indications for liver transplant, the one and five year graft survivals for alcohol hepatitis were 92 and 82 percent, respectively and then the patient survivals at one in five year were 93 and 85 percent respectively and these numbers were higher than in other groups but the results were not statistically significant So I interpreted this as really no different. They also looked at um, patients with alcoholic hepatitis who received simultaneous liver kidney transplant and compared those to patients who received liver transplant alone. These results also were not statistically significant but suggested lower one-year but higher five-year graft survivals and very similar one-in-five-year patient survivals. The third objective was looking at predictors of post-liver transplant graft failure And the recipient characteristics that they found to be associated with inferior outcome were female, gender, the requirement of life support, and diabetes. But again, these results did not achieve statistical significance. So my takeaway with this paper was basically an increased rate of liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis, but driven mostly by um, a few number of centers uh, that that are kind of leading the way in this in terms of their willingness to perform these transplants early for these patients. There seems to be a spreading of this idea and I think that's what we see with this sort of stabilization and the variation in the latter two years of their cohort. And they actually talk about this and say how there are these regions where maybe one or two transplant centers, you know, kind of start doing this and get more comfortable with it and then prompt other nearby transplant centers to initiate their own practice. They also talk about how the changes in the liver allocation system might affect the practice of early liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis. and They believe that even though this wasn't a stated intent of the policy change, that the new system will encourage more of these transplants, partly because these patients draw organs from a larger geographic area compared with patients that get liver transplant for other indications. These tend to be high-meld patients, and that uh, you know sort of will change how they draw organs relative to share thirty-five. And they, they also noted that these patients tend to have a lower waitlist mortality. Which further contributes to their ability to draw these organs from broad geographic areas because their meld uh, increases uh, without, you know, subsequent increase in morbidity and mortality. So I think, you know, the cohort was relatively small, and this is a very small percentage of liver transplants overall. So, you know, I think some of these results that didn't achieve statistical significance is, you know, not necessarily because these trends aren't important, but just a, a function of the the mathematics. So something to certainly continue to pay attention to um, over the next few years. It'd be really interesting to see if the early part of this decade mirrors the last two years in their study cohort with, with the stabilization and practice uh, variation and more centers
0: performing these earlier. Yeah, it was a great overview, Lisa. I think, I think this is paper just kind of is a summary of kind of the initial experience across the U.S. Is What, you, what you've seen is since this uh, very famous paper from France and Belgium almost 10 years ago of liver transplantation for alcoholic hepatitis came out showing good outcomes, there have been a number of kind of single center series that have been published in the U.S. And I think what makes this one sort of important is it just showing you the what's happened over the last five years. And you know, the growth here is pretty substantial in terms of the fact that very few were being done uh, five years ago and now it's um, growing. I agree that it'll be interesting in the next few years to see, I imagine this is gonna just continue to grow from here moving forward. And I also agree that this sort of geographic discrepancy will probably become less and less over time as more centers are doing these types of transplants. But in the, in the current situation, what this sort of highlights is that there are places in the country that are not even doing these, or it's very hard to find a center that is, are doing these transplants. I, I think that also go, it kind of harkens back to the... A little bit of even though this is only a small percentage sort of some geographic disparities that that liver has gone through and tried to deal with with these um, concentric circles to to balance out meld scores it's sort of reminiscent of that in a way i do think though that this will As this continues, there'll probably be more centers doing this and more criteria that are going to be similar across centers because this just sort of reflects you that this is, no pun intended, kind of all over the map in a way. Mm -hmm. But I I think this is, uh, like I said, a good paper kind of summarizing what's going on in this area of our field. And kind of a, a an initial experience but you know again this is this is an expanding indication
1: yeah i think it's going to be important for the centers that are leading the way on this to share their you know process experience and their you know patient selection their experience with patient selection to allow you know the centers that are have been more hesitant to delve into this to learn from you know their their early experience
0: yeah and i think the other thing too is um you know, these data that are from UNOS, they, they, you can't get, you know, relapse data and stuff right. like that from this. You can see that their survival is good to, you know, one in five years, at least in the medium term. We know that people who return to drinking have worse outcomes, particularly after five years hmm. from other comorbidities. So they're not really showing the full picture here, which you really can't from UNOS data. But I agree having like, Centers lead the way in having larger registries where you can get more granular data will be really important to understand the full spectrum of this. But great. Yeah. So, um, just leading into, I'll, I'll go over the next paper, which is, um, in a way kind of dovetails a bit because as, as things like alcoholic hepatitis and NASH have really expanded in terms of the leading indications, the one indication that has really shrunk significantly is hepatitis C. And, uh, this next, paper by Ivanix and the group at Henry Ford really talks about not only hepatitis C as an indication, but how Retransplantation has gone way down for hepatitis C and those people needing retransplant have very good outcomes now compared to when we weren't able to really cure hepatitis C before uh, DAA therapy. So kind of almost in a, in a parallel increase of other indications, this one is shrinking and also retransplant perhaps is shrinking. So. I'll go very briefly into what they did. This was also done from OPTN UNOS data, um, and they basically were focusing on patients receiving retransplantation for hepatitis C indications and non-hepatitis C indications. And they looked at two different eras, comparing before and after DAA therapies were instituted in both cohorts. So they kind of split it into hepatitis C retransplant and non-hep C retransplant, and uh, over 2,000 retransplant patients were included in the data set. Again, this was pre-DAA was 2009 to 2012 and post-DAA was 2014 to 2017. So they're kind of directly comparing before and after. Um, over 2,000 patients were included. And for hepatitis C, there was a significant decline after DAA therapy in the number of patients needing or getting retransplants uh um, which is the first significant thing and and non hepatitis c was a slight increase from before and after daa therapy pro Probably because just of the growth of liver transplantation in general. The important thing is that DAA therapy, post DAA therapy, was associated with significantly improved graft and patient survival after retransplantation. Wanted to draw the attention to the readers. Um, I think a key figure are the Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, it's on uh, Figure three on page eight of the paper. On the left side is hepatitis C retransplant. On the right is non. Hepatitis C retransplant, and the first thing you see on for hepatitis C is the significant increase in survival in the post DAA era compared to pre DAA. And you don't see the same thing with non hepatitis C because again, it's you're really not changing anything for these patients pre or post DAA. Um, whereas hepatitis C, the main thing that you're the main uh, factor here is the DAA therapy was developed and implemented, and that. While they couldn't prove it in this study, it's clear that the DAA therapy is responsible for this uh, significant improvement in survival. And to the point of where retransplant for hepatitis C has similar outcomes as retransplant for any other indication. This was uh, not like this before DAA therapy. They were they had significantly worse outcomes because of uh, recurrence of hepatitis C. So again, this the reason this is important. I think this is a paper that somebody had to do, and I'm glad this group did it. It's basically showing you the impact of of DAA therapy both on Patients needing initial transplant, which has gone down. Patients needing a retransplant, which has really gone down. In fact, myself, I don't remember the last time we at Northwestern had to do a retransplant for somebody because of hepatitis C or in a Hep C positive patient. You know, we're able to. To cure them and stabilize their disease, and moving forward, I mean nobody has recurrence anymore because of DAA therapy. So this this will probably be completely eradicated as a, a retransplant specific retransplant indication in, in in the future. But if you're going to retransplant somebody for it, as long as you cure hepatitis C, their outcomes are excellent. And so this really is um, something I think not surprising but very exciting to show just the impact of the, the therapy itself and how it's really changed the landscape of what we do in transplant. And of course, the fact that this has gone down opens the doors for, for other indications. And I think things like we've been talking about, NASH and alcoholic liver disease have kind of are now taking the place of hepatitis C in terms of um, indications for, for transplant. And so uh, good paper to kind of show that this uh, really is, what we all thought was happening, and now there's there's proof in it. If anybody has any comments,
1: yeah, Josh. One of the things that struck me when I was um, reading this paper was exactly what you just alluded to: this idea that the the antiviral therapy has allowed um, sort of a change in the paradigm of the way that we um, take care of these patients. It has been so effective and has um, you know helped with making room for other indications for liver transplant in the face of an organ shortage we still you know have not fixed I, I wondered about the costs of the mm-hmm. antivirals and how this might contribute to improving the coverage for those therapies given the public health implication because yeah, they are yeah. you know they are associated with cost and I don't know that they're equally accessible to all patients, but clearly they, you know, I think this paper helps to show what many of us know is that that, that therapy more than proves its worth in terms of, the, you know,
0: the yeah, economic case. No, yeah, you're for right. It. You're right. I think uh, the cost thing was a significant thing early on. I think that's gone way down, fortunately, the cost of antiviral therapy. Hmm. I'll never forget, we had a patient who uh, had rapid recurrence. This was like in 2013, 2014, uh, right uh, right at the time sofostavir, lidiposvir was coming out. And basically, he was in liver failure with ascites and jaundice, his meld was 30. And we were fortunately able to get him a therapy that basically allowed it he, he was cured and his decompensation completely resolved he had fibrosin cholestatic hep c so it was like doing another liver transplant carrying his hepatitis c it basically resolved his decompensation and this is just kind of a you know at that point this was the therapy was 90 or hundred thousand dollars. it's now gone down to about a quarter of that cost yeah no i i think now that it's 2021 it's even better than it used to be in terms of getting patients access to therapy. It's not perfect, but I do think, uh, you know, the whole the whole idea that the, the cost is, is, is getting in the way of patients getting therapy has really kind of become not as much of an issue anymore. And particularly when you're considering transplanting somebody, um, you have to be able to have antiviral therapy accessible to Make that happen. But yeah, no, good stuff. So, um, Roz, why don't we go on to your your papers? Uh, As they final used to papers. say decades ago, and
2: now for something completely different. So, it's yeah. always my pleasure to be here because I get the most diverse papers. But uh, this is a, a basic science paper by um, Benedict mar and Thomas Weckerly's lab at the um, Medical University of Vienna um, examining uh, MHC barriers in chimerism-based transplantation. So I think it's going to be tough to explain this without another 30 minutes and a chalkboard. So what I suggest is that for the clinical readers, don't Phase me out, and for the basic readers, apologize for me trying to simplify this paper. But essentially, this paper examines the role of both major and minor histocompatibility differences in blocking tolerance induction using a series of mouse transplant models that this lab is very well known for doing um, and examining. and And the take-home overall message is that major histocompatibility differences limit bone graft bone marrow engraftment. And that process is NK cell dependent. And that the other issue is so-called minor antigens don't necessarily affect bone marrow engraftment, but they impede graft survival and establish mixed chimerism. So most of us know that grafts get rejected, except maybe the liver because it's special. But solid organ transplants are rejected by T-cells, by the direct pathway, which is intact um, donor and major histocompatibility antigens on donor antigen-presenting cells. The semi-direct, which is, again, intact donor MHC on host cells and then this indirect pathway where there's processed peptides, but there also can be non-MHC immunogenic polymorphic molecules known as minor histocompatibility antigens. And and I think the stem cell people are aware of these minor non-MHC antigens as, as being disruptive to bone marrow transplant. I remember them because the male mouse has an HY antigen, so-called antigen, and, and female mice will reject that organ. And so um, this minor antigen is important. And in clinical transplant, if you look at kidneys from what look like MHC or HLA identical siblings, they're not identical twins, but they're zero mismatch. They they can reject and they can reject because of these minor incompatibilities. So stem cell transplant, you know, in order to get tolerance, you need bone marrow transplant, your stem cell transplants, and you induce tolerance through uh, a mechanism called, um, Chimerism, where you try to replace the host immune response or host immune system, at least fully or partially. Um, In humans, it requires significant cytoreductive therapy, irradiation, chemotherapy, and or immunosuppression. And you have a risk of you might get rid of the tumor and, and, and for example, in, in cancer, you can get rid of a tumor that way because you can get the graft can go after that, but it can you often get graft versus host disease, and that's the real problem too in, in human transplantation. And so, some of the more selective central therapies result in what's called mixed chimerism. Um, and there's probably in humans a little bit different than some animals. There may be some immune regulation as well through regulatory T cells, which is another popular methodology. And indeed, even when you have mixed Uh, it has been shown that skin grafts slapped on, this is again an animal model, but skin grafts gone on on supposedly tolerant animals show rejection and they call that split tolerance. And it's thought that there may be skin-specific minor antigens that cause this rejection so this paper really uses a number of animal models primarily the Balb sea mouse into the black six mouse which is a major disparity but they use different strains that limit the extent of major histocompatibility differences and minor it's a cute paper in that regard it's kind of fun to look at Uh, and again if you have a complete MHC mismatch and you do a bone marrow transplant between the mice there's no engraftment unless you deplete NK cells um, and, and skin grafts are rejected in all these recipients, even if you have engraftment in the NK cell mice. And so when you do these animal models just the right way and you make the major histocompatibility be matched and the minor be mismatched, um, you really um, have difficulty in getting engraftment, and so it's difficult to induce tolerance. So this group is also known for the fact that these models are utilizing a clinically relevant costimulatory blockade and mTOR inhibitor therapy. So this models is not just some intellectual activity, but it's an attempt to sort of provide clinical relevance to this technique. And I think that there's not a lot known about how minor histocompatibility antigen Mediate alloimmunity. Their work suggests that there is indirect allo recognition. That was a debate probably before you were born josh well maybe when you were in diapers that you know that or may, okay maybe high school but um but that was like a big debate does chronic late rejection is that mediated by indirect recognition and so there's some evidence to support some of their rejection mechanisms obviously through indirect recognition so that's another kind of interesting aspect of this work and again the the conditioning regimen in these animals is non-cytotoxic so if they can further dissect this down a bit further and and help us understand tolerance. There, Even though it's a mouse model, uh, I'll bite that, then there has an opportunity to help us sort of translate this into humans. And again, you're familiar with some of the work done at, at your institution in Kidney where you get mixed chimerism and people still later on go on to, not, to lose their tolerance. And so it's, you know, the best situations are when people are fully like their donor. And I think that's just not going to be the long-term goal. So a paper like this kind of helps provide those mechanisms all right well that was that in a nutshell so go back there's like 10 different figures and but it's really well done and, and and even you know even though I don't do tolerance research, um, it's kind of helpful in, in the way these animals are set up and it's just very clever in a way that that lab is well-suited to do. Right,
0: All right. well, I don't, um, I don't have anything else to do. I thought it was an All interesting right. paper, but yeah. Um, well,
2: let me go on to the last paper, which maybe is the one that'll wake everybody up after that. No, I'm just kidding. But um, this is um, Matt Cooper's paper on ensuring the need is met, a 50-year simulation study of the National Kidney Registry's Family Voucher Program. So I just want you all to picture where you're going to be in 50 years, perhaps on a beach or perhaps on a mountain, which has a beach surrounding it with an ocean. I don't know which, but I'm not sure I'm going to still be here. Or if I am, I'll be in a place where I don't have to worry about science. But uh, essentially, for those of you in kidney world, you know that the NKR, an independent organization, has facilitated probably about 3,500 kidney transplants from live donors since 2008. Um, This is a a, a national sort of chain slash swapping program. Not every academic center is involved. Our center here is not. UAB was not when I was there. And what happened is over time is as they were doing this, you'd get these folks going into this program where you had an incompatible donor and the donor would be ready to donate, but the recipient wasn't maybe ready for the transplant. For example, uh, an older adult, an older parent or a grandparent putting their kidney in the pool but the child with kidney disease wasn't ready for transplant and so they created this voucher program kind of gave you a chip to the donor to say if anything happened to you you'd be eligible for a transplant as sort of a safety net but also to the to the child's family to say you know you're going to be taken care of in a few years when it's time for your transplant and they actually expanded this voucher program to a family voucher program to include healthy family members if they ended up getting kidney disease as well and so there has been a lot of concern raised in the community, you know, you're handing out all these vouchers. Where are the donors and are and what, you know, are we going to outstrip this system and, and what's the ethical repercussions? What are the legal repercussions? What are the medical repercussions? And and so um, the goal of this paper was really to address the concern. Where it was this model was was the number of voucher redemptions in the future predicted to outstrip the number of available kidney donors. They used a Monte Carlo simulation model, you know, a model that's used for risk analysis in insurance companies. It's been done in banking, uh, in um, uh, and also in transplantation. I think it's been done in oral, organ allocation models. And we're not going to have a whole lot of time to go through the assumptions of the model. Some of the characteristics of the model um, include SRT. Our data since 1986. So, predictions of graft failure, predictions of of donors developing kidney failure, and the primary outcome measure is what they call the coverage ratio. This is the number of available donors per the number of vouchers that are redeemed in a given year. So you want that to be greater than one. You always want to have more donors. And they provide several scenarios. The best scenario is what they call the rapid growth. There's lots of donors and lots of vouchers. And when you look at the CR, even at the worst percentiles, it always remains well above one. And then they have another scenario that looks bad where you have a lot of growth of vouchers. You have a lot of donors, and but also a rapid decline in, in voucher needs and, and those cr ratios get pretty close to one but above and so i rather than going through each of the um scenarios i would ask you to go ahead and look at the different figures um, in the paper uh, to get a sense of what they're talking about over time and they make several points they feel that the value the vouchers have value they have value because they have what's called chronological incompatibility i gave you an extreme example of a grandparent and a child but it could be somebody like me who you know is keeping my kidney for my child but i'm aging out and i want to put my kidney somewhere so let it do some good you know every time there's a voucher redemption there is risk for the donor supply because somebody is getting their kidney and 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 and, and it has to be matched in, in a certain way uh and i think uh um, their point was that regardless of the scenario, the risk of donor non-availability is low. And so they feel this endorses that the NKR can, can go forward with this voucher program. But I think there are also limitations. And even for someone like me that um, follows living donation quite closely, there was no incorporation of ABO incompatibility, ABO blood type or, or recipient sensitization, which needs to be tracked because that could really affect the opportunity. You know, you can redeem a voucher and you pull a certain kind of donor out of the pool, um, and it may skew what's in the pool. And the donor pool may be affected. There may be some catastrophe, and like COVID-19 came out of the blue. Could there be a terrible catastrophe of a donor death, God forbid, that would halt live donation or something that would go on that would disenfranchise potential live donors or the end stage kidney disease rate as we will see in a few years may go up dramatically from a disease such as COVID-19 where you have maybe a disproportionate number of individuals that need transplant and that's not really a trust. And, and I think, frankly, it's hard to really know what's going to be going on in 50 years. I mean, 50 years ago, we were just sort of infants in this business. And if you said to me, as a fel- and I wasn't there 50 years ago, but if when, during my fellowship, we made some very difficult decisions of who would be transplanted, who wouldn't, who would get dialysis. I mean, that's not the dark ages. That's like the 1980s and 1990s where we made those decisions because of, of resources. So I think that's an issue. I think there's an ed- accompanying it. A tour by mike Engelsby and tom pearson that points out that the authors are all on the board of the nkr and and they're participating centers and so the success of the vouchers means that these centers have to continue to participate and they have to encourage participation and if god forbid something happens and the nkr shuts down there's no recourse i mean there's sort of a caveat in the paper about how risk cannot be you know burdened you know burdened by the NKR or they can't mount the burden of, of risk and so there has to be potentially other opportunities maybe the OPTN takes on an agreement to back up the NKR if it should fail financially or or just close down for some reason and and again the 50 year modeling okay that's great today but you know those guys pointed out that my financial planner is modeling like every year and saying, Hey, look at you. Look what happened. Look at your income. Whoa, you have a lot of debt. What happened? Oh, it's those kids again. Okay. You know, you're, you're, you're going into a phase of your life where you're paying a lot because you've got tuition, for example. Well, what's the tuition here in, in this? And, and is this a model they should be simulating regularly as opposed to it's one and done and we say goodbye? So I think, you know, the points here are that we want to encourage live donation. We want to encourage it safely. We want people to feel comfortable when they donate that. They're doing it fairly and honestly, and so we need, you know, quality assurance and transparency. And I think that's what the, that's what I think the whole field deserves.
0: Yeah, I was uh, struck by just I mean, you explained that beautifully. I just any kind of prediction that's so far ahead when so many factors can change in a population, and um, like you said, just unintended things that can happen. I remember in the late 2000s there was a prediction of this was before. Uh, DAA therapy for hepatitis C that the number of liver transplants that would be needed for hepatitis C was going to dramatically increase by 2020, 2025. Mm. And lo and behold, they've gone down by 50, 75% and because of DAA therapy. So, like, it was kind of became more of a historical paper just showing how you can't really predict the future
2: No, and, and i think yeah. you know your point too when when lisa was, when you were talking about when lisa was talking about the alcoholic hepatitis i mean i kept i hate to say it reverberating about covid but hearing about the use of of substances to support mental health and and alcohol in particular you know we kind of joke about it but i think that you know, this pandemic is having reverberations on many populations, but, but even those populations like us where we're thinking and teaching and, and working, I think there are subtle things that are probably more than subtle happening. And so I, you know, I hope I'm around long enough to sort of say, Hey, I was there. And by the way, this is what happened. And I think it's important when we think about the racial disparities paper that. You know, I'm glad to see people getting on it. I think we we saw these things happening, and we always seem to respond too late, almost like Texas with their infrastructural issues. It's a little late now to do it, so we really need to get going.
0: Yeah, at least they're being highlighted so that people can get on trying to be proactive. So, all right, great. Well, thank you both. That was a great, very diverse podcast. And we will see all of you next month in April. Have a great month.
1: Thanks for having me guys. You're welcome, Lisa. Take care.
0: The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at mjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.